Matthew chapter 5, let's get a bit of a running head start, starting with, with verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Last Sunday, I closed our time together with the observation that you would think a group of people who fit this description would be loved. Men and women who are poor in spirit and that they possess a genuine humility. People who mourn by having a, a, a pure heart for the, the hurting and the lost. Meek people who have their strength under the control and will of a higher power. People so passionate for righteousness that they're willing to pursue the right things no matter the cost. People willing to actively end that brutal cycle of pain and hurt by being merciful to those that don't deserve it. Those with a pure heart, honest intentions, people who are able to remain peaceable in the way that they engage, even with those that they disagree with. You would think that this world would love these type of people. I mean, this is a wonderful ideal. And yet, as we conclude the Beatitudes, we're going to see quite the opposite is true. Jesus continues his Sermon on the Mount with verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As I noted in our initial setup to what is commonly, traditionally referred to as the Beatitudes, and the way that Jesus structures each verse, utilizing really what is the same pattern, an easier way of, of reading or translating this particular idea into English uh, would be those who are being persecuted for righteousness sake are blessed. And then Jesus answers, well, why are they blessed? For theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. Right from the jump, it's important to point out how broad this phrase, are persecuted, is in the original Greek language. Now, our minds, when we think of persecution, our minds tend to conceptualize the idea of a person undergoing like the threat of physical violence or harm or a loss of life. Like Christian missionaries, when we think of the persecuted, living out in dangerous places, they fit this description. And yet, while that's true, the word being used here just refers to someone who is being mistreated or harassed, troubled, being pressed upon, a person receiving hostility. The word persecuted here, it's very broad. Now, scripturally, we have all kinds of examples of persecution. We have examples of persecution in the scriptures that do result in bodily harm. Stephen being stoned to death. We have examples, though, just as many of persecution manifesting in other ways, such as the, the slandering of a person's good character or false accusations being levied 
threats, unjust imprisonments. Persecution in the scriptures even manifests as verbal assault or ridicule, even economic relegations. My point is that Christian persecution, even before we unpack this idea and what Jesus is getting at, Christian persecution really does take on all kinds of shapes and sizes in America. Persecution can come in extreme forms, like being gunned down while attending a Bible study at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, or being gunned down during Sunday services at the Sutherland Springs Church. That's indeed persecution. But persecution can also manifest in America, in our culture, and the loss of a job, or the verbal ridicule in a classroom, or being canceled on social media networks, or the unjust accusation of of bigotry and, and being a hateful person just on account of your genuinely held beliefs of what God says about hot button topics like marriage and gender. It also needs to be stated that in this verse, Jesus is being specific, in fact, very specific, with regards to the reason for this particular persecution. In fact, the blessing of receiving the kingdom of heaven, it's only relevant, notice again, to the individual experiencing what persecution for righteousness' sake. Like, keep in mind, Jesus isn't describing a Christian receiving shade because they were actively picking a fight in order to bring attention to themselves. Or that they were being a weirdo. And this is not a persecution because you voted for Donald Trump. Or worse still, just are a pompous jerk. Instead, Jesus is referring to someone here, a particular person who has taken a very clear stand for what is righteous, for what is right and true, and is now suffering as a consequence or as a result. To this point, the contrast between Jesus, our our King, our Lord and Savior, and other religious leaders is radical. I could go through many examples, but I'll only pick out one. You know, Muhammad was able to rally his followers around a particular idea. And the idea was victory, regional domination. And yet, how fascinating. That from the very beginning of his ministry, again, Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, his manifesto. Jesus, our king, was transparent. I mean, from the jump, completely transparent. That anyone who would dare be one of his followers, one of his disciples, that you should expect persecution. That being persecuted by this fallen world would be a central component of our citizenship in heaven. Again, blessed are the persecuted. Because you and I have been called to stand for truth, for righteousness. To stand and defend truth. Persecution by a world founded upon a lie. The lie that you can be your own God. It means that it is an unavoidable characteristic of the Christian experience that we will face persecution. Let me just substantiate this really warm and fuzzy reality that the world will hate you. You know, just to make sure that you're aware that that's true. Let me share some other passages. You might want to commit them to memory. 
They're good ones to, to read in the morning. Good thing to put your thoughts on. How about John 15, 20? A servant is not greater than his master, Jesus said. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's awesome. That's so, thank you, Jesus. How about James 1, verses 2 and 3? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. When, not if, or on the off chance. When, a guarantee. 2 Timothy 3, 12, it's another doozy. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, that I hope is you, will suffer persecution. If you're not feeling real good about it, how about Philippians 1, 29? To you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. One final one, 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. It really is astounding to consider, but with the exception of the very small, tiny, really eccentric book of Jude, every single New Testament writer spoke of persecution. Verse 11. Blessed are you. Now, notice that Jesus, he, he does something subtle here. He has switched from kind of the, the, a broad blessing. You know, he says, blessed are those, plural, who are persecuted. But now, now he switches to the singular. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. This word revile Interesting word, it means to taunt or, or to chide. If you want to get down to its, its most literal translation, it, it means to cast or gnaw in one's teeth. We would, in a modern vernacular, say it's to be chewed out, to be chewed in one's teeth. Blessed are you when they chew you out and they persecute you and they say all kinds of evil, literally every form of evil against you falsely for my sake. Notice we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, but we're also persecuted for Jesus' sake. The hatred, it's directed towards Jesus. But then he says, and what a challenge, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Literally, jump for joy. Oh, man. Why? For? The reason this person is blessed? Great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One subtlety in what Jesus is saying in this passage is this acknowledgement that more often than not, persecution ends up being the evidence that you're on the right side of history. Do you notice how Jesus made that comparison? Great is your reward in heaven, for so they also persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, if you take a, a stroll through the many centuries of church history, this point is inescapable. Like, in a sense, Jesus is saying, if the world hates you, chews you out, persecutes you, rails against you, if the world despises you, it probably means you're doing something right. Like, Christian, not only is persecution fundamental to the Christian experience, to the Christian life, but in a way what Jesus is saying is that it should be viewed as a badge of honor. And here's why. Satan, the enemy, only attacks those in whom he's threatened by. 
I'll say that again. Satan only attacks those in whom he's threatened by. If you're experiencing opposition and persecution and temptation, spiritual warfare, it should be an indication, it doesn't make it easier, that you're doing the right thing. That you're making such an impact that you're a threat to the kingdom of evil. One commentator wrote, Christians cannot help but appear as a threat to the legitimating ideologies of those who rule. Christians do not seek to be subversives. It just turns out that living according to the Sermon on the Mount cannot help but challenge the way things are. As I read through the Beatitudes, I'm struck again by the order. You know, immediately after instructing his disciples to be peaceable, blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus follows with blessed are those who are persecuted. Again, if with one breath Jesus is calling his disciples to make peace, it's odd that within the next breath Jesus affirms that peace is kind of an impossible ideal, an impossible aim, an impossible goal. Amazingly, our commission to be peaceable in the battle deepens with the knowledge that the enemy, the attitude of the enemy That peaceable attitude will not be reciprocated. We are called to be peaceable, knowing that our enemy won't be. What a calling. What a contrast. Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, again, not to beat a drum, but you should expect to be persecuted. You should anticipate in some way, shape, or form, and I think it will get worse, to be reviled, to be falsely accused, your expectation should be nothing less. The truth is when the persecuted choose to rejoice and be exceedingly glad in the face of such things, there is no explanation to the world. The source of that joy, where does that joy come from? Again, not something organic, natural to us, but something imparted, something that is a fruit or a byproduct of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Now, with the context of all of these internal character traits highlighted in the Beatitudes, and in light of the promise of persecution, Jesus says, look at verse 13, He says, You are the salt of the earth. The idea behind the way that Jesus says, you are the, in the Greek, again, it's emphatic and it's definitive. A better translation is that Jesus is saying, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. He continues, he says, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Let's read a few more verses before going back into our commentary. Verse 14, you are, again, you and you alone are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. This word basket, it's something specific. It was an item that was used as kind of a cover uh, that you would go around and you'd use it to snuff out a lamp. And so it was was a, a literal basket at the end of a pole that you would use to snuff out light. You don't put it under a basket. You put a light on a lampstand. And it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, Jesus says, that they may see your good works 
and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, Jesus will have many thematic transitions in the Sermon on the Mount. We read through it in the intro, and you probably picked up on it, how there are times where Jesus kind of abruptly shifts from one topic to another topic. Topics that that really don't have much overlap, that he just pivots hard. He moves from one thing to another, keeps keeps it flowing. That said, in this instance, this particular transition, the idea of his disciples being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, it's incredibly relevant. It does flow thematically. It's relevant to the certainty of persecution. Jesus is saying, you are the salt, you are the light, and the context of the Beatitudes, this is what you're called to be, and the reality that persecution is unavoidable. The truth is while there are eternal blessings that result from persecution, in the verses we just read, Jesus promised the kingdom of heaven, as well as a great reward when we get there. But practically speaking, persecution, and let's just be real about it, in the moment, yeah, we're to rejoice, we're to be exceedingly glad, but no one likes it. Like, it's not gratifying in the moment. No one likes going on their Facebook page and seeing that they've been slandered about something untrue because they were taking a, a stand. We're human. It stings. It hurts. It's a bummer. It's not gratifying to be persecuted. And yet, while the persecuted are blessed, and we understand that it'll be painful, it'll be hard, we have to remember, we have to keep it in mind that we have a calling in the midst of persecution. Jesus says we are salt and light. And in bringing this up, Jesus is cautioning against what would be a very natural reaction to his disciples facing difficult circumstances and hostility. Again, persecution isn't fun. Jesus is addressing two reactions we would naturally have. First reaction, secretism. And even worse, the second reaction, escapism. Let me get to both of those for a minute. A brief examination of church history will reveal that when a culture becomes increasingly antagonistic to the things of Christ, monastic movements where people deliberately leave society in order to live out their faith in solitude or in small, isolated communities located in in remote places. Monasticism grows in popularity. In fact, let's be real, America itself was founded by whom? A group of people fleeing the Church of England in search of a place that they could worship God free of persecution. According to Eugene Thacker's book, In the Dust of the Planet, beyond being a religious expression, monasticism is often a counter-reaction to a culture that is descending into nihilism. When now nothing is true, there is a longing to find truth, Case in point, one of the bizarre components to the hippie revolution of the late 60s and 70s, a component that actually carried over to the Jesus movement, was the rise of communes, where new converts 
sought to escape from the chaos of the world and the lure of vice in order to live out a more simple, authentic expression of their Christian faith. There are a lot of examples of this. I probably deleted more parts of my Bible study at this point than I kept. But the best illustration of this idea would be a faction of Quakerism that's known as the Amish. An escapism, a separation, an isolation. And yet, this tendency to escape from the influences of the larger global community can take on a far more subtle expression. You see, as a reaction to religious persecution and the fear of our children being somehow corrupted by the godless, wicked culture around us, there has, without question, been a push of Christians over the last 40 years and a culture growing more secular, more antagonistic to Christianity. There has been a pulling away from society. It's a fact. It's a truth. We have seen in 40 years the rise of of our own Christian schools. From what? Persecution, godlessness, things happening in the public school system. We remove our kids. We isolate them. We put them in our own safe cocoon. Elementary school, middle school, high school. We now have our own Christian universities. Or how about this? Sports leagues. We won't even let our kids rub shoulders on a ball field with the unbeliever out of some fear of influence. But we separate. We have our own Christian music and Christian media. On and on and on it goes. And trust me, as a parent who saw the value in moving his two kids from public school into a private Christian environment, I understand that these decisions are never linear. And instead, they're very complex. And yet, as with all of life, Jesus' disciples are not called to live permanently isolated from the world. The Bible is clear that we're never to be of the world, but we do live in the world. Now, how you strike that balance, that's between you and your king. For a while, our kids were in public school. We pulled them out. But our balance is that we, we participate in, in athletics at the public parks. Like how you strike the balance between being in and not of and navigating your family through those things, that's fine. But you've got to understand that there's a heart. We're to be salt. We're to be light. You know, aside from escapism, I, I do think that the larger tendency, especially in our day and age, is what I'm going to call secretism. Now, I know, and you'll have to tell me later, I know that's not a word. I know it's not a word. But let me define the word I just made up. If you invent a word, you can define the word. Secretism. Out of a genuine fear of persecution, or what you might even in a more modern context call cancel culture, secretism is the act of intentionally minimizing the expression of one's faith in the public square. Like, in a sense, well, you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus. And you have no problems at all expressing your faith and your biblical beliefs at home, 
at church, in the safety of fellow believers, in secular capacities, and in secular interactions, you intentionally keep these things on the DL, on the down low. Why? Out of a genuine fear of persecution. In a way, like you're trying to navigate the world as kind of a, a secret disciple. Now keep in mind, secretism is not the opposite of being bullish or bombastic. I'm not advocating an in-your-face, take-no-prisoners, compelled to comment on Facebook or Twitter about every social issue, let me share my opinion even if you didn't ask, I enjoy controversy, I dare you to fire me form of Christianity, is appropriate. <laughs> it's not. Or even godly, it isn't. Instead, secretism is way more subtle than that. Secretism is the moment that you decide to withhold voicing an opinion or, or the moment you refuse taking a moral stand because you know what will result if you do. And since you're aware that you're going to receive backlash for believing that the Bible and what it says is true, you deliberately will choose to remain silent. Secretism is the person who counts the cost and decides the cost isn't worth it. Well, I completely understand the appeal of secretism. And to, to be fair, I have to acknowledge that my livelihood is not on the line when I take a moral stand. The truth remains the same. Again, persecution is the expectation. We've been called to be and to have a higher ideal. Being muzzled is not an option. It should be out of a love for our fellow man that we defend things that might cost us. That we defend God's definition of marriage. That we defend His definition of gender. Even if it costs us. Now whether it be this dramatic and extreme act of seeking escape, escapism from a hostile society, or this more subtle approach of secretism, concealing one's faith in the face of hostility or certain persecution, Jesus here is cautioning against both tendencies by pointing out as his disciples, we are two things. We are, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. There is an important reason that we should stand even in the face of opposing forces. Now, before we unpack what Jesus is describing by invoking these two items, salt and light, there are four broad observations I should make about them both. It's applicable to both, so I don't want to be redundant. First, as with the Beatitudes, Jesus isn't telling his disciples to go out and do something in particular. Instead, he's pointing out what his disciples were to be. As long as we are being the men and women that Jesus has called us to be, we will in turn be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. With that in mind, really, as you process all these things, the, the, the big question, the fundamental question that you should consider isn't, are we being these things, but how well are we doing at being? I am salt. I am light. How well am I being salt and light? 
This is why Jesus describes salt that loses its flavor and is therefore good for nothing. It's why he describes a light that's useless. It's still a light, but it's a useless light because it's been hidden, placed under a basket. Secondly, as a central component to salt and light, keep in mind that both items are to be experienced and not heard. They're to be experienced. Like salt. Salt can only provide flavor if it's tasted. Light can only illuminate when it's set into a place to be seen. Again, salt serves no purpose whatsoever if it's never shaken out of the shaker. Light, totally redundant, if it never shines out into the darkness. Thirdly, the way in which Jesus structures this entire section indicates apart from his disciples, these things would not exist in the world. You are. You and you alone are salt. You and you alone are light. Apart from you, it wouldn't exist. As I mentioned earlier, You are the, it's emphatic, it's definitive. Understand, as the citizens of heaven, it is our job to bring into this world something that is totally alien to this world. In fact, we're to bring something to the world that cannot and will not exist apart from the disciples of Jesus bringing it. Finally, In order to emphasize who his disciples were to be, Jesus chooses two natural elements that mankind could not create on his own. I won't bore you with all the science, because science is boring. But we only have salt through an organic process of weathering, volcanic activity. We harvest salt, but we don't manufacture salt. Salt exists. And at best, light. We're really not 100% sure exactly what light is. But the best guess is that it's waves of electromagnetic radiation. It's energy coming from matter visible to the human eye. The reason at this point, it's it's critical to your understanding of Jesus' larger point, centers on the reality that you are only able to become salt. You are only able to become light through an act of God. Neither are things that you can manufacture, make up, create. Christian, as with the Beatitudes, you cannot be salt without God making you into salt. And you cannot be light apart from Him speaking forth a light inside of you. In the ancient world, salt. What is salt? more accurately, sodium chloride, was an essential staple to life, salt. And therefore, it was an extremely valuable commodity since salt slows down decay and can be utilized as a disinfectant because of its antiseptic and preservative properties. For centuries upon centuries upon centuries, especially before refrigeration, salt was used to keep meat from rotting as well as to treat wounds on a battlefield. (laughs) Wounds on a battlefield. 
Now, when they would pour salt into a wound, it did slow the infection, but man, was it incredibly painful. It's why pouring salt into a wound, we use that phrase in a negative, right? Because it hurts. You know, in Jesus' day, historians believe that a portion of a Roman soldier's pay was actually in salt. Like, it was that valuable. Now, we don't exactly know the origins of the, of the phrase to be worth one salt, but we do know it refers to a person who's effectively earning their salary. In fact, in English, our word salary derives from the Latin salarium, with sal being the Latin word for salt. When Jesus tells his disciples, you are the salt, he's describing the practical way in which our lives are to impact the world around us. You see, as the salt of the earth, your life and my life are to have a redemptive quality and that we act as a social preservative. You know, active in this world, whether it be in the halls of power, the boardrooms of of public and economic sway, the seats of education, or simply as cultural influencers living out our daily lives, The disciples of Jesus in our world, we should be slowing the rate of moral decay. It's one of the reasons as Americans, it's important to vote our moral conscience at the ballot box. To this point, it's not an accident that we have seen and see a direct correlation between the number of Christians in the West and the erosion of our moral framework. As Christian influence wanes, there should be no surprise, with less salt, that we're drifting further and further away from God's ideal. In fact, the Bible actually tells us the only thing withholding the unveiling of the Antichrist and the end is the salt-preservative presence of Christians in this world. And when that's removed, the dam is opened. In addition to being a a social, societal preservative, keeping our world from falling off a cliff. As the salt of the earth, our lives should also possess an antiseptic characteristic. This world is sick. I don't know if you're aware. And it's been sickened by sin. And within the world itself, there's no antidote. There's no remedy And yet it's the disciples of Jesus on this earth being the salt of the earth that we bring a cure. As Christians, you and I, we're to be the people that those that are brokenhearted in our sphere can come to be made whole, to be the salt of the earth. We're to be those that the lost come to be found. We're to be the people that those with questions come and seek out for answers. We're to be the citizens of heaven where the damned and the lost can come to encounter their Savior and their King in a very practical sense. Until Jesus arrives, we, the citizens of heaven, should be making our world a better place. Bridging off that idea as the salt, we're to provide the earth a taste of heaven. There should be a flavor to our lives. We should be the flavor of godliness. 
Our lives should be holy, but they should be fun and exciting, enriched by the Holy Spirit. You see, there should be something fundamental to our DNA, a flavor, an aura, a taste, foreign to the unbeliever. <laughs> Have you ever noticed? Go to the movie theater. I know a lot of us haven't been to the movie theater in a while. Thank you, pandemic. But when you go to a movie theater, the bottomless popcorn, you ever notice it's pretty affordable? You get your family of five, and you get the bottomless popcorn. You're like, great. And then you look over at the prices of the sodas, and you're like, we're not doing that. Well, they give you the bottomless popcorn. Why? Because they know you're going to have to pay the money for the soda because of the salt. You see, the salt, it, it makes, it, it adds to this, it, it makes you thirsty. You know, when the world spends time with you, Is there a greater thirst that that person walks away with for the things of God? You're the salt. They might not know what they're thirsting after, but they realize they're, they're missing something. They're lacking something. They're thirsting for something. Well, we understand sodium chloride is a stable compound. And therefore, from a, like a scientific standpoint, it can't lose its fundamental properties. In the time of Christ, salt was able, though, to lose its flavor because it would pick up additives, impurities with time. Salt was still the same, but it would add impurities, additives, lose its flavor as, as a result. In fact, there was a room associated with Solomon's portico in the temple during Jesus' day where they would keep salt that was basically worthless. It was flavorless. And they would keep it in a room so that when the the temple courtyards would freeze over in the winter. Again, the marble and whatnot. That they would have salt that they could spread out on the floor. It would be thrown out and literally trampled underfoot by men. Exactly what Jesus is saying. This was an image that the people would understand. It's no good for flavor. It still has a purpose. Just a different one. Christian, when you give your life to Jesus, when you are reborn through the indwelling of His Holy Spirit, you are not only in that moment righteous before God, but you become the salt of the earth. It's permanent. You are the salt. That cannot change. And yet, according to Jesus, your effectiveness as salt, there is a proportionality, a correlation. Your effectiveness as salt, the amount of flavor you yield, it's determined upon purity. Again, you could preach on this by itself, but never forget, the only thing that can limit your saltiness is when you allow additives, impurities, worldliness to dilute your witness. Following salt, Jesus continues, verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. Now, <laughs> what makes this such an interesting statement is that in John 8, verse 12, Jesus, he makes this famous declaration. He says there in the temple precincts for all to hear, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What's crazy about that statement made by Jesus in the context of this one is that two years have transpired since he gave the Sermon on the Mount. Like traditionally, I bring this up because Jesus, okay, he says, I am the light of the world. 
And that illustration does undoubtedly dominate the New Testament. But this instruction to the disciples, you are the light of the world, was done much earlier before Jesus had made the other statement. Now, a lot of times when we preach this, we will, we will make the correlation. Well, Jesus is the light of the world, and we're the light of the world in, in so much as we shine forth the light that Jesus gives us to shine forth. And there's probably a truth to that. But the simple fact remains, and we really can't detach ourselves from the reality that Jesus made this statement to his disciples before he had ever extended out the analogy of light as being a reference to himself. So what in the world is Jesus saying? And I've wrestled with this. Breaking the analogy of his disciples being the light of the world down to kind of its basics. We understand that light, light accomplishes really only one practical function. Light enables sight. Without light, our eyes would have zero functional purpose. We could not see anything. It's only because light emanates from all matter that the physical world around us is knowable. Some of you might say, well, light also produces heat because it's an energy. Not always. Just Google it. Understanding that a part from the presence of his disciples, the world would remain in complete darkness. Again, you and you alone are the light of the world. We realize its importance. Like to illustrate this idea, Jesus, he, he uses this picture that everyone living around the Sea of Galilee would have known firsthand. In verse 14, he says, a city that is set on a hill. Like why is light important? Well, a city that is set on a hill, it cannot be hidden. One of the challenges to navigating a body of water like the Sea of Galilee that was so far below sea level was that you would have these low pressure zones that would block out the night sky while also creating like a daunting mist on the water. That meant that you, you, you didn't have the ability to see the stars above and you couldn't see the towns that were littered on the shoreline. That would make storms at night on the Sea of Galilee very, very difficult to maneuver if it weren't for the cities that were on the surrounding hilltops. It was in that zone in which you could see. Can't see the stars, can't see the shore, but these cities that are set on a hill, I can see them and I know them. See, when Jesus says to the disciples, you are the light of the world, he's saying that our lives fundamentally emanate something into this world that could not be seen any other way. You see, friend, we provide a world in darkness insight into what would otherwise be unknowable. Our lives present to the world evidence of the spiritual reality, evidence of a kingdom. With the idea that light emanates something to be seen, notice what Jesus equates to being the light. It's important. Verse 16, he says, So let your light shine before men. So it's something that can be seen that they may see what? Your good works. Again, within the context of persecution, Jesus is encouraging his disciples to let their light shine before men and not hide it away, not conceal it from view, 
In fact, because our lives enable the world a glimpse of the truth, our lives should be placed on display. We should resist escapism or secretism. We should let our light shine from a lampstand so that all can be seen. I don't want to beat a drum, but light. Light exists for only one reason. Again, one of the most mysterious things on the planet. But we know in the Genesis account that God said, let there be light. What happened? There was light. Light light cannot exist apart from a work of God. For the Christian, there is no question that our lives are only able to emanate Christ because we've been filled with the light of the world. Something I don't think the disciples understood in the moment it was said at the Sermon on the Mount, but they definitely understood it later. Again, you can go to John chapter 1 to see all of this. But then never forget the practical exhortation. Psalms 119 verse 5. God's word is what? It's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In the end, what's the ultimate purpose in being the light of the world? Well, Jesus answers this rhetorical question. He says that they, again, this lost world that's apt to persecute the light, may see your good works, your life being the evidence of the kingdom, and what? And then glorify your Father in heaven. I want to close by just pointing out how radical of a statement this was made, like what this was in the moment. When Jesus tells his disciples, when he mentions glorifying your Father in heaven, this is the very first time within the New Testament, that God is being referenced as our Father. In fact, the idea of God being our Father will be such a dominant theme in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus will bring it up three times in this chapter, 12 times in chapter 6, two additional occasions in chapter 7. Meaning that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount will mention God being the Father of His disciples more than is ever mentioned of the children of Israel in the Old Testament. There's something important here. You see, in light of persecution, the disciples of Jesus were to absolutely face, Jesus would know it, He wanted them to understand that we're to be salt and we're to be light, even in the presence of an opposition. We have a Heavenly Father who sees us And he knows us. And that whatever it is that we face on this world, whatever persecution or trial or tribulation, yes, we have this commission, we have this calling, we're to let our light shine, we're to be the salt, we're to be all these beatitudes, but in the end we should always remember no matter what's coming my path has been allowed, has been allowed For those that are watching on the live stream or listening, whether it's the podcast or the audio later, I paused because we had a cell phone go off with a rooster crow. And I can't help but think about a rooster crow. Because it was a man who was afraid of being persecuted. A man named Peter who told Jesus, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. 
I got your back, Jesus. And then the moment they came in and they arrested Jesus, to Peter's credit, he was like, well, I got to do something. So he takes out a dagger and he attacks a kid, you know, a Malchus. And he's not, you can tell he's a fisherman and not a swordsmith because he, he misses him, clips off an ear. You know, Jesus has to pause the mission of saving the world of sin to put the kid's ear back on, you know. And Peter follows Jesus at a distance, already feeling like a failure. I was going to stand up. I was going to defend you. There were two other crosses. I was going to be on one of them. Jesus had told him, the rooster crows. You will deny me three times. You can't do this on your own, Peter. Brings him to the end of himself. And a little girl around a fire says, aren't you one of his disciples? And he says, no, why? Because he's afraid of what would happen. He's filled with fear. And he curses at her. And then the rooster crowed. And he ran and he wept. He wept. And then Jesus, after resurrection, he has to come back and he encounters Peter on the Sea of Galilee. And he has to have a conversation. And he asks Peter three times, Do you love me? Peter had to become something to be of any use. And for us, in the face of whatever's coming our way, in this society or this culture, you feel the the tide is changed. We can't be these things on our own. The rooster crowed. Larry, I owe you ten bucks. He gave me a good ending. So, Father, Lord, we ask that you would make us into these things.